Pastor Tim, good morning, everyone. Happy Palm Sunday to you. Definitely a different Palm Sunday this morning. I want to pray before we get into the word. Oh, God, there are hearts that are heavy right now. And our hearts break for them. We don't need a distraction in this time. We need you. We need hope. And so, Father, we turn our eyes to Jesus. And we pray through him this morning, we would feel a little stronger, more able to take another step. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're in your 30s or a little older, uh, you more than likely remember when this came out. Yes, the My Buddy doll. Uh, Now, in spite what some of you might be thinking who are at home right now, uh, for a six-year-old, uh, that was the most manliest doll ever created, and I wanted it. I would constantly watch the commercials for it. I knew the theme song. I'd sing it to myself all the time. My buddy, my buddy, wherever you go, he wants to go. You could tell I was a little obsessed with the My Buddy doll, so much so that I would actually ask my dad for one every single day until he finally relented and was willing to promise to buy me one as soon as he got paid. Well, that was two weeks from the promise he made. Now, what I didn't know was that he said that to me, hoping that after two weeks I would forget completely about it. But of course, instead, I didn't. Instead, I thought about it with every passing day that one day I was going to be with my buddy. So you can imagine how devastated I was when two weeks passed and I didn't get the doll. (laughs) But if my dad thought I was persistent before then, he had no idea what was coming after then. Let's just say eventually I did get a My Buddy doll. You know, in the same way, we all have things at different stages of our lives that we desperately hope will happen. The 17-year-old can't wait until the day they get their license as a sign of freedom from their parents and independence. The young businessman who has patiently climbed up the ranks works countless hours around the clock, eagerly awaiting that big promotion that's going to set him up financially for the rest of his life. The young couple anxiously looks forward to the day that by God's grace, they'll be able to buy a house or maybe be able to have their first child. We all have ambitions and hopes that we're we're dying to see happen. We daydream about them. We wonder how much better life will be when those things come about. And whether we realize it or not, we want them so bad that our lives all of a sudden get oriented around them, around achieving them, around getting them. So we plan and and we save for them. We we can't help but do everything in our power to either help bring them about or prepare for their coming. We'll do anything to have them. See, in a very real sense, though these goals are in the future, they start shaping our present. They start affecting our day-to-day lives as we know it. Jesus said, In Revelations uh, 3.11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that one may seize, so that no one may seize your crown. 
And again, he repeats at the end of the book of Revelations, 22.20, yes, I am coming soon. And our response to that, saint should be the same as John's was, amen, come, Lord Jesus. I like the way the song, Even So Come, puts it, like a bride waiting for her groom, we'll be a church ready for you. Every heart longing for our king, we sing, even so come, Lord Jesus, come. See, that forces me to ask, am I waiting for Christ like that? And how does his coming have an impact on how we view the recent events? Should it? Now, I'm not suggesting that these events are a sign that Jesus is coming tomorrow. But rather, regardless what the circumstances are around us, Jesus is coming soon. And moments like these are an opportunity to consider, are we ready? Are we living expectantly? And in our heart of hearts, it's every day that passes a day closer, closer to being with our Savior. Or have we gotten so distracted by the world around us that we've lost sight of that? The Apostle Peter, in the passage that Pastor Tim read for us earlier, is writing to believers who've gone through persecutions, listen, we'll never be able to relate to. Uh, See, back then, becoming a Christian was literally to put your life on the line. And everything, including your livelihood, could be stripped away from you like that. Your friends family. Even your land could be taken from you. And I'd imagine that these believers, with everything crumbling down on them, were starting to lose hope. And yet Peter, who had had his own challenges to walk through, says here that as bleak as things may seem, they have a hope through Christ that pierces through the darkness. In Crossing Church, we do too, through Jesus. Because we know that Jesus is coming soon. And that gives us radical convictions that may seem irrational to everyone else. But deep in our souls, by faith, we know that we know they're true. Now this first point is going to be a little more background and a little more explanation, so bear with me. But if we get this, it will unlock the rest of the passage. The first conviction that, that our faith gives us is We are confident in a hope that we have not experienced yet. Peter says midway through verse 3 and through 4, speaking of God, in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Through Christ, we've been born into a living hope and an inheritance. A living hope, of course, suggests that this hope isn't dead nor stagnant. Rather, it has the power to do, to fulfill what it's promised. Because it rests on the assurance that just like the Father raised Jesus from the grave, he'll raise us from the grave. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Now God not only raised the Lord but will also raise us up through his power. And Romans 8, 11 adds, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. God's resurrection power through his spirit is already at work in you, Christian. You see evidence of it every day in that you even want to turn to God. You know, so often we have a tendency, I know I do, of focusing on what we're not doing well. And, and we think about how we could be praying more, and we think about how we could be serving more. And certainly there are times we need encouragement to do those things better. But we also need to consider where we've come from, where by God's grace, the changes have taken place in our lives. Because according to Scripture, there was a time where I was dead and you were dead spiritually. And we wanted nothing to do with God. We had no interest in Him. We'd scoff at the thought of church and this religious stuff. But now we love Him. And you can't imagine life without Him. In fact, now, when you sin, when I sin, it troubles us to the point that we want to change and grow. And even though we may not be where we want to be yet, listen to me. We know through this, this resurrection power in us, God is determined that one day we will. God shows us this, or more so Hebrews 6, 20 calls Jesus our, our forerunner, the blaze, that blazes the trail through his death and resurrection for that to happen. Biblical scholar Edmund Clowney describes this as a hope that holds the future in the present because it is anchored in the past. Did you catch that? Let me read it again to you. A hope that holds the future in the present because it is anchored in the past. We've also been born into an inheritance. Now, an inheritance in biblical times, though wasn't limited to this, was primarily land that was passed down from one generation to another. And it symbolized back then and, and even now belonging. It showed that you were a part of a family and that you had a place to call your own. But as hinted at before, for some of Peter's readers, becoming Christian came at the cost of being disowned by their own family, who would have considered any worship to any other God as, as slap in the face. Now, we live in a very individualistic culture where my faith doesn't necessarily have to be the faith of my parents. Uh, children from a predominantly Christian or Jewish home may choose to be something completely different than their parents. And the worst they'll get is a look of disapproval, but at the end of the day, listen, we're still going to invite them to Sunday dinner. They're still a part of our family. We just may not be happy. Of course, we're not happy with the choice they're making. But for families back then, family was everything. You didn't just get to make uh, major life decisions on your own. Where you live, what you did for a living, where you worship or who, where you worship or who you worship more so was determined by your family. Again, uh, the land that was in your family's name would be passed down to you. If your great, 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 great grandparents were shepherds, guess what? You get to stay in the family business. And whatever gods the family worshipped, you must worship. And to not was to turn your backs on them 
And to do that would result in them cutting ties to where you were no longer their son or daughter. You see, for some of Peter's readers, and still so many around the world today who who live in this family-dominated culture, I have no doubt some of you know exactly what I'm talking about who are from, from different countries have come here. Becoming a Christian means losing your family and your future security, your inheritance. But Peter reminds them here that they, through Christ, have been born into a new family with an inheritance At the end of verse 4, he says, we'll never perish, spoil, or fade. Unlike our earthly inheritance, this one's meant to last forever. The land that they lost here will be replaced with real estate in the eternal city that will last forever. The eternal city of God. And it will never be taken away. Peter adds on, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. See, not only is this inheritance coming, it's waiting for you, Christian. And though friends and family may turn their backs on you, God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And as we speak right now, you have a place in the kingdom of God. You might even say, Your your name is already on the deed of the land that God has promised to you. As that that famous chapter about the the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 says of the brothers and sisters who've gone before us, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth, People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I am certain of this, for all of us who belong to Christ... God has prepared a place for us. God has a city ready for you. So you've got to know this. You've got to, got to have it in your heart for the second conviction to even be possible, which is we are joyful, though we endure pain in this life. Verse 6 says, In all this you greatly rejoice, meaning all that's been mentioned before, the certainty of our future, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, by trial here, he's, he's mainly thinking about persecution we experience for our faith, as we said over and over again. But a case can be made that all types of trials challenge our faith. I'm, I'm sure I can get an amen for that at your homes there. Uh, some of the same principles we see in this verse can be applied to any hardship we face in this life, Period. Like, for instance, Peter points out here when he says, though now, notice the now, for a little while you may have had to suffer. When he says now, he's suggesting most trials are for a moment. Notice I said most trials, not all trials, but most trials. They're for a season in life. It's a period of hardship. Uh, They may seem intense right now, 
but they won't last forever. Though it's hard to believe at that time, relief eventually is coming. And similarly, when he says here for a little while, he's saying that in light of eternity, trials are brief. They're a blimp. Now, if you have a pulse, everything inside of you wants to say, how can he say that? We're in the middle of a global pandemic, global nightmare. As of this morning, we had 1,200,000 cases, or over that, of people around the world who have been infected by the coronavirus, and more than 65,000 deaths, so many of whom are dying alone. I saw this story on the news recently of a woman who had a mother who was dying of the coronavirus in the hospital, and the nurse that was looking after her mother actually called this daughter on FaceTime so that she could see her mother for the very last time. She noticed that the mother's breathing was changing and that her death was imminent. And so this nurse puts on protective equipment and, and goes to the bedside of her mother and starts gently stroking her hair as her daughter would and holding her hand as her daughter would have if she was there. But I know that there are so many people that didn't get to do that. In fact, I know there are people in our church this week who have lost friends, a grandmother, or a spouse to this terrible disease. How do I reconcile what Peter is saying with that? We're weeks into something that will last for months. And, and who knows the toil it will take by the time it's all said and done no offense, but how can I ever look at that as brief and momentary? It goes back to what Peter calls his readers at the beginning of his letter when he says to God's elect, strangers in the world. We are strangers on this earth. And this broken world filled with heartache, sickness, and death is not our home. We need to be reminded as often as we can, church, whether we're sitting at the deathbed of a loved one or we're looking at a coffin, we need to remember this is not the end. But in Christ, this is actually entrance into a glorious inheritance. And that death itself has been defeated on the cross 2,000 years ago. That's why we grieve but we don't grieve without hope because we are living for more than what this life has to offer. And so when pain overwhelms us, we need to remember we are citizens of a city far beyond the reach of the pain we experience here whose builder and architect is God. And by his grace, all these things will pass away. Christian writer and speaker Paul Tripp speaking of the current pandemic, put it like this. It's hard to imagine right now, but there will be a time when we will look back on this brief, on this as a brief moment of trouble. We will do so in a perfect world, with perfect bodies, with perfect hearts, and in a perfect relationship with God. Everything will be as it is supposed to be, and we will live in peace and righteousness forever and ever. The last perspective we can get about trials from verse 6 
is that they're not meaningless. Every trial comes for a reason. The English Standard Version of the Bible uh, translates verse 6 as this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the question is, you've been grieved if necessary when it says that, according to who? If necessary, according to who? I'd say God. He allows and uses the trials in our lives for a purpose, for a reason, not as our enemy does, but ultimately for our good. And in verse 7 describes how one of, the purposes, one of the purposes at any given time may be for us to grow in our faith. See, even gold, as valuable as it is, starts out with impurities. And what needs to happen to it is that it needs to come under the intense heat of a crucible for its imperfections to rise to its surface. And then the goldsmith can carefully scrape off its impurities little by little. See, if gold's ever going to reach its potential, it needs to be refined. The same is true of our faith. Trials can have a purging effect on us. They can bring things to the surface that we never would have noticed without them. For instance, a neglectful husband and father may not notice how much he's made work, his life, and his idol until after so many years of missed birthday parties and holidays and late nights, his wife says, I'm leaving. A mother who was bitter and, and broken by her past may not realize her words of criticism are so painful until her daughter finally belts out, I never want to be like you. Words she remembers saying to her own mother years ago. See, sometimes it takes trials to reveal things that still need to be refined in us. Now look, I don't claim to know what God is doing through the coronavirus, but I'm convinced that in his infinite wisdom, he is doing something. He has a purpose for this. He, he can do something redemptive through us, through me, through you, if we pay attention what these fiery circumstances are bringing to the surface of our lives. Every day we're flooded by fear. Fear of what's going to happen if I have to step out of the door or my loved ones do. Uh, fear over our finances. Fear over what the future holds for my career. Do I have a future right now? For each of us, some fears may be more than others. But each of them forces us to ask, do we remember who we belong to, where we are going, and who's in control? See, trials strengthen our resolve to trust God, no matter what. Because things that we thought were true, like that God will hold me up, even when my heart's breaking, even when my world's being torn apart, not through experience. We know it's true. As Pastor Tim often says, they connect the 18 inches between our head and our hearts. And when that happens, it refines us more and more into the image of Jesus, who has paved the way to glory. Listen to this, through suffering, not only as a means of salvation, but as an example. As our trailblazer, he leads the path for us to follow. Paul says in Philippians 3, 10 through 11, 
I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. To experience the glory that's waiting for us. We have to be willing to faithfully endure the hardship of this life. Not in a resigned way. Well, what are you going to do? This is just life and bad things happen. But in an obedient, faithful way. Trusting that this suffering is leading to a greater glory. The same way that the cross had to happen for the tomb to be empty. And blood had to be spilled for life to be given. By the grace of God, we have to endure many kinds of trials on this earth before Jesus welcomes us home. Years ago, there was a man who, uh, during a time of recession, lost his job and a pretty sizable fortune and his beautiful home. Now, you think, man, that's terrible. He's, he's going through a rough, rough time right now. Then out of nowhere, his precious wife died. And the only thing he held on to throughout that time, the only thing he had left to hold on to was his faith. One day when he was walking, looking for a job, he stopped to watch some uh, stone workers working on a large church. One of them was chiseling this triangle piece of rock. And he asked this worker, where are you going to put that piece? And the workman said, do you see that little opening near the top spear there, spire? Well, I'm shaping the stone down here so that it will fit in up there. Tears filled the man's eyes as he walked away. For the Lord had spoken to him through the laborer whose words gave new meaning to his troubled situation. No sane person like trials. We don't rejoice over pain, but over what it accomplishes in our lives. An eternal weight of glory that far outweighs anything we experience in this life. Yes, even now, even with this pandemic around us, God is preparing us for that day. And if we see that, we see our last conviction. We long for a Savior we have not seen yet. Verse 8 says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. I love this verse. I love this verse because it captures the heart of our faith. Our hope is not in a place or more comfortable circumstances. It's in a person. And at the end of the day, what it all boils down to is when we finally get to see our Savior face to face. That's the goal of our faith, to be with Jesus. The verse is describing our relationship where we treasure him, almost like lovers communicating from a distance. Uh, During our first year of college, um, I was in Langhorne, Pennsylvania, and Holly was four hours away in upstate New York, um, and I couldn't wait to talk to her. Uh, I tell you, throughout the day, I would check my cell phone all the time, and we used to write letters to each other, so I'd check the mailbox to see if I received a letter from her. See, uh, back then, I was so infatuated, I still am, but especially back then in terms of I hanged on every word she had to say to me. Uh, nothing, though, compared 
to the thought of being with her. And so I would drive four hours, even if it was just for the day, for me to be with her. And similarly, I, I think about, does my time with Jesus reflect, I can't wait to see him. Peter is talking about a relationship with Jesus that's been growing since the time I've been saved. A relationship like two lovers communicating from a distance. So when I, when I come to the word of God, do I hunger for it because I'm awaiting to hear God's voice? Do we worship and pray with, with the sense of, of overwhelming goodness that we've received from the Father, amazed that he loves us at all? See, to enjoy Jesus in the future, I've got to treasure him now. And when that happens, it starts to shape my present. We said before, our, our hopes in the future, if we want them bad enough, they start shaping how we live our day-to-day lives now. What better time than now with all our distractions stripped away than to rededicate ourselves, if I could speak, to rededicate ourselves to time with Jesus. Crossing church, things may be chaotic right now. Um, We never look forward to suffering and illness of any kind. But sometimes they do give perspective. And they help us realize, are we putting too much stock in the things around us? Or are we putting our trust in what's coming through Christ? There was a 15-year-old girl who was bright and healthy, um, who all of a sudden had her left side of her body paralyzed and started becoming blind. When a doctor checked her over, he went to her parents and said, her best days are behind her now. To which she responded, no doctor, my best days are yet to come when I see my king and his beauty. I know many of you are hurting or grieving right now. I know some of you are just scared, paralyzed by fear. I know this, and I understand it. But I want to graciously remind you as I close here, this is not your home. And you have a hope that will not be put to shame, brothers and sisters. Our hope is alive even in times like this because we know Jesus is coming soon. 